Before we begin our Torah study, would you pray with me? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitsheno b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Well, this week we're in the 10 days of Ah, Yamim Naraim, that period from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. The Shabbat is called Shabbat Shuva, the Shabbat of returning. It's a time of humility, a time of contrition before the Lord. It's a time to examine ourselves before him and to consider the great mercies that he shows us. And I, I have one rabbi friend who said, you know, it's really important during these 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to, to humble ourselves and examine ourselves before the Lord. But it's even more important from Yom Kippur all the way to the next Rosh Hashanah to keep going. So it's, it's a time of examination. It's also a time to, for us to pray for those who were affected and are being affected by Hurricane Ian, which became a tropical storm and then regained hurricane strength as it moved towards the Carolinas. Millions of us here in Florida experienced Ian we're grateful for our, for our situation. We have electricity. We have not lost our power. That's great. There was terrible destruction on Florida's Gulf Coast. There was flooding along Florida's Atlantic coast on this side, including the uh, St. Augustine area. And our hearts really do go out to everyone who suffered loss. Some have suffered uh, loss of loved ones and others property loss. Here in Jacksonville, we expected much more rain and stronger winds than we actually got. And we're thankful, are we not? We're thankful that we didn't experience the full brunt of this storm. But we have experienced storms. We've experienced the threat of extreme danger. And we wanna take time this Shabbat to thank the Lord that we were rescued from great harm and loss of life. Sometimes we get through a situation and it's not as bad as we thought and we just keep going without saying, thank you, Lord, you protected us. And there is a traditional Hebrew prayer of thanksgiving called Birkat Hagomel, thanking God for his kindness and his deliverance. And I am gonna pray this, take this to heart, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hagomel v'chayavim tovot, shegmalani koltov. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who rewards the undeserving sinner with goodness and who has rewarded me with goodness. And if you can say amen, say amen with me. And we can say, may the one who rewarded you with all goodness reward you with all goodness forever. So we are saying to the Lord, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you that we got through this difficulty. And thank you that you will help others through this difficulty as well. Thank you, Lord. We don't take that for granted. We don't take it lightly. We honor you, Lord. <coughs> and we say, 
It's a sign of your goodness to us, a sign of your goodness because we are undeserving people who do sin. Today, after the Shabbat service, we'll connect with each other during an oneg in the Shalom Center, and I encourage you to meet with us next door, fellowship together, have some refreshments, encourage and support one another. You know, sometimes we have great stories to tell when we go through difficulty, but our greatest story will be, it wasn't so bad this time. For most of us, we have that testimony. Well, we are reading in the Torah portion this week about the end of Moses' life approaching, and it's an important time of transition for the children of Israel, and I want to remind you of some Hebrew that's important to you, a word you'll hear often from me, kadima. Can you say that? Kadima. It means forward or charge. And then there is another phrase, Lador Vador. Say that with me, Lador Vador, from generation to generation. The next generations will be taking up the promised land. That is the message to Moses, and that is the message to the children of Israel. And future generations will enter into this covenant. And you know, there's a, a, a little bit of humor in all of this seriousness that Moses and Joshua and the children are, of Israel are going together because there were times when Moses said, I can't do this. And now the Lord is saying, you don't have to. It's over. And that should be a relief, but it's, it's bittersweet for Moses. But Moses rises up and he is not so focused on himself as he is on the goodness of God and the purposes of God. And so he is prepared at all times to declare the goodness of the Lord to the children of Israel, and not just to them, but to you and to me. We who had not even been born or that were the twinkling of an eye for our parents, we who had no life yet are encouraged by Moses because the words of Moses, the words of the Lord to the children of Israel have been written down and passed down from generation to generation so that we could read them and we could take heart and we could be strong ourselves. We are not starting from zero, Mishpocha, the children of Israel had to face something, and that is the plans of God are going to be accomplished because God watches over his plans. God knows the beginning, he knows the end, he knows the, the middle, he knows how to make things beautiful in their time. And this week we're reading about the commissioning of Joshua, I want to use that word commissioning, it's in some translations, um, and it's connected to the idea of being called and being ordained, being commissioned for a task. So we're gonna read 
um, two aspects of this commissioning. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse seven is where we'll start. Next, Moses summoned Joshua. And in the sight of all Israel said to him. So he summoned Joshua, Joshua, come here, he said. And then he spoke these words, be strong, be bold, for you are going with this people into the land that Adonai swore to their ancestors that he would give them. You will be the one causing them to inherit it. You will be the one. You've got responsibility, Joshua. It goes on. But Adonai, it is he who will go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you, so don't be afraid or downhearted. Let's say these two words, but Adonai. But Adonai. You see, sometimes we forget that the Lord himself is in charge. And he makes everything different when he is leading the way. Adonai will go ahead of you, and he'll be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you, so don't be afraid or downhearted. So that's the word. Moses is saying, Moses is saying to Joshua, in front of the children of Israel, you are going to continue the work. I'm not going to you're going to. And he's saying to Joshua, it's on your shoulders, and he's saying as well to Israel, it's on all of Israel's shoulders to go forward. And this is a moment where Moses is actually expressing vision that is so important. It's vision that, that depends on what God has decided to do and says yes to it. And understands that each of us in our time has to do our part. None of us can do everything. You can't do everything. Do we have any high achievers here? Do we have any um, type A people? Do we have any perfectionists here? Hallelujah. That you aim for excellence. That's the good news. Let me tell you one more detail. You can't do it all. Others have come before you. Others will do it with you. Others will do it after you. We all have a condition it's a terminal condition, we will all die. Now, <laughs> that's just the way it is, right? That should not make us sad, that should make us live with, in, with uh, intention. Because we each have time, a portion of time, to accomplish what can be done that is assigned to us, what has been given to us. And this is what Moses is understanding, and, and he has such poise in this moment. And he's saying, Joshua, it's on you. It's on you. But don't be afraid. Be bold. 
Be courageous. It's on you to do what God has decided to do, but you're not doing it on your own. God will go before you. He will be with you. He will fulfill what he told Abraham, Isaac, Jacob he would do. It wasn't your plan, it was his plan. Now a lot of us, we have a different way of organizing our lives. We make our plans and then we ask God to bless them. Many are the plans of a man, but the Lord directs his steps, right? And sometimes it's better to actually say, Lord, what do you want to do? And then try to agree with him and say, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. It's a, it's, it's a dance, if you will. We have to take initiative, God takes initiative. We have to say yes to the Lord. We have to uh, be clear in our vision. We have to do our part. And that's what Moses is conveying to Joshua. And do you, was it Joshua whose name originally was Hosea? Yeah, Hosea, which, which is a, a prayer, God save us. And Joshua is a form of declaration. It's, it's more declarative. It, it's uh, a statement, God saves us. So how many of you have ever prayer, prayed that good Jewish prayer, help, <laughs> help Lord? That's what Hosea meant. And so every time that Hosea was with Moses and you know, I can imagine Moses turning to him and saying, Hosea, no, 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 Yehoshua, Yeshua. Two different ways of saying the same name. Yeshua, Yehoshua. Instead of saying, God save us, it was a declaration. God saves us. Who's going to save us? God is going to save us. Who will redeem us? God will redeem us. Who will bring us into the future that he's planned for us? God will do that. However, we have to do our part, right? We have to do our part. Let's go to verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, the time is coming for you to die. Summon Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting so that I can commission him. Isn't that interesting? Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in the tent in a column of cloud. The column of cloud stood above the entrance to the tent. You see, Moses was given responsibility to commission Joshua, which he did. Now, the Lord is commissioning Joshua. Verse 23, skipping down there. The Lord also commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, with these words, be strong and full of courage. For you are to bring the people of Israel into the land about which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So the Lord commissioned Joshua 
first Moses and then the Lord. And Joshua received his commissioning from Moses and from the Lord. This is important to understand because these two aspects carry great weight and significance. And they reflect a pattern in the scriptures. God calls and those who respond faithfully are set in place and that is confirmed at the human level and at the spiritual level. But everybody who's ever been called into ministry knows this, there's a moment when you have to summon up your courage and your confidence that God was the one who called you and not just people and not just circumstance. It goes on, you are to bring the people of Israel into the land about which I swore to them and I will be with you. God's initiative, God's promise, God's calling are all wrapped up in this and yet Joshua's responsibility is too. And responsibility is a word that's based on response, right? So God takes the initiative and calls, but Joshua has to respond by accepting responsibility. Now for all those people who hate the idea of responsibility, get over it. Because life is filled with responsibility. And the, the best things in life carry responsibility. The Lord's saying to Joshua, it's on you, man, but I'll be with you. It's on you. Everything depends on you, but you can depend on me. Everything depends on you because I called you. Everything depends on you because Moses' time is up your time for leading is now. So we have this blend of God's call and our responsibility. Moses was strong and he was hopeful before the people. But there's something that Moses understood that he passed on to all of Israel through the scriptures. And it was this, Moses could never be the ultimate redeemer of the people. Because Moses was a sinner. You see, the Lord redeemed Israel out of slavery with Moses leading them, but it was the Lord who did the actual redemption. Moses was not some kind of mystic guru with, with magic powers who could cause plagues to happen that would uh, ultimately convince Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. Moses was not a man who in his own power could split the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, 
the Red Sea, rather. He couldn't do it on his own. It was the Lord leading Moses and Moses responding to the Lord's leadership. It's important to understand that. When we think of Moses, the Redeemer, we have to, we have to nuance that. He was only able to function at a certain level as a redeemer. And as we're preparing for Yom Kippur, I'm thinking about how meaningful Yom Kippur is for me as a Messianic Jew, because it requires of me as a Jew and as a follower of Yeshua, because I am both. It's important to understand, you can't just put me in one little box. It takes a lot of boxes. You gotta put me in a lot of different boxes. But it's important as a Jew and as a believer in Yeshua and a disciple of Yeshua to think about Yom Kippur and what does it mean to me given these different aspects of who I am and what I experience. It's important for you as well. Well, there's an interesting scripture in the Psalms. It's a Psalm that was written by the sons of Korach, believe it or not. And even though Korach had no future, he had some boys that did. So Psalm 49, just a few verses, seven through nine. And I'll read to you, this verse from the Jewish Publication Society, traditional Jewish translation, no man can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For too costly is the redemption of their soul. Another way of putting it is the redemption of their life is costly so that no payment is never enough so that they would live on forever and not see decay. Let me put it in other words, because I want, I want to say it several different ways, because maybe one way will, will connect with you. No one can redeem another person. No one can give to God the ransom for that person's soul. That's what the scripture is talking about, the ransom for their soul. It's not talking about financial redemption. It's not talking about someone who got into debt or even uh, was a, a, a debtor slave, if you will. It's talking about, or, or a prisoner of war who needed to be redeemed or whatever. It's talking about redeeming the soul of a person. No one can give to God the ransom for a soul because the ransom for a person's soul, the ransom that allows them to live forever and have eternal life, with God, this ransom is too costly for one person to pay for another. And only God can pay that price to redeem a person. And that's why in many places in the scripture, there is the simple declaration, the Lord our Redeemer. Moses can't do that. Israel knows it. You and I know that. It's important to remind ourselves that because 
It's the foundation of our understanding of what God has done by coming as Yeshua the Messiah. The Lord himself has paid the ransom price because we could never do it ourselves. Now, when I was a young Jewish kid growing up in Roanoke, Virginia, I had a, I had a number of um, Christian friends, some of whom were also anti-Semites. That may sound like confusing and contradictory unless you grew up in that place and in that time, you may not think it's possible that someone could be a Christian and they could be an anti-Semite and they could be a friend. But if you're African-American, if you're black, you probably have a similar experience growing up with some people who were Christian and were racist and were your friends. It's like, how? on earth, and unless you've lived through all that, you may not know that it's possible, but it was possible. One of the, one of the things I didn't understand was what Christians believed about Jesus. I'll tell you what I thought they believed. I thought they believed that he was a man who was so good, he became God. And that made no sense to me. It, it turns out that is not the correct understanding. It was God is so good that he became one of us. I didn't know that. That was a shock to me. And many Jewish people don't know that. Some people think that God just can't do that. But it raises the question, if God wants to do it, can he do it? Yes. Can the Lord redeem if it's his desire? Yes. Okay. So the Lord himself has paid the ransom price because we could never do it ourselves. And God has become our kinsman redeemer, one of us who paid the price to redeem us from the bondage of sin and death. Yeshua came as Lord and as Redeemer. He came as Messiah and as King. All of that together. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the prophet says that the Lord will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Supplication is, is like a, a prayer um, asking the Lord for mercy. And they'll look on me, the one they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Isaiah, I think everybody knows Isaiah was a Jewish prophet. There's really no question about it. Isaiah also talked about the human response of looking upon. Isaiah 53, starting in verse two and going to verse six, 
speaks of Messiah and says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And this is before Messiah. So this is a prophetic declaration about what will happen when Messiah comes. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, when anyone would look upon Messiah, they wouldn't see something in particular that would draw them to him and cause them to desire him. Verse three, again about Messiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So people would despise him. They'd turn their eyes away from him. He was rejected. Rather than being honored, he was held in low esteem. So this is one of the ways that we could later recognize Messiah. It's not that every rejected person might be Messiah. It's that Messiah would in fact be mistaken for someone else. He wasn't charismatic in his appearance. He wasn't tall and handsome and strong looking that would draw people. There wasn't something that, that was attractive about him. That's not how he came. Verse four, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So he took up whose pain? Our pain. And bore whose suffering? Our suffering. He paid the price for us and he suffered for us. And then verse five, using some of the language of Zechariah, that prophetic language of piercing, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us shalom was on him and by his wounds were healed. So he was pierced not for his transgressions but for our transgressions. And we can make that even more personal. We can each say he was pierced for my transgressions. He bore the weight of our iniquity. He bore the weight of my iniquity. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. We can say it personally. He suffered the punishment that I deserved so that we received the peace that we did not deserve. Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So take note of this, God will look upon Mashiach as our sacrifice. Not that he was a good man or a really good man or a really great man, but he was a perfect sacrifice. And this helps us understand the sacrifices of the ancient Jewish temple. Everyone who came with an atoning sacrifice to the temple was coming because he was guilty before God and he knew it and he was coming to acknowledge his guilt and to do something about it. 
He came to the priest who also knew the person was guilty. How did the priest know the person was guilty? Because priests deal with guilty people. And that person would bring a sacrifice and according to the details of Torah, the sacrifice itself had to be without blemish or defect. It had to be perfect. And then the one who was confessing his sin was through all of this acknowledging that he himself or she herself was blemished and defective, not physically but spiritually. And so together with the priest, they were asking God, don't look on me, look upon this sacrifice. Don't look at my guilt Look at the sacrifice's innocence. That's the pattern. That's the pattern that we're taught. And when we think about Yeshua's sacrifice, we can understand what we're saying to the Lord. We are saying, consider Yeshua's innocence, not my guilt. We're saying, look at him. Look at his sacrifice, not me and my guilt, not me and my sin. It's the center of our understanding and it unites with what the psalmist was declaring. I can't pay the price for myself. I can't do it. No one can redeem the life of another. The price is too high. So then we have a dilemma. Okay, then we can't do it. So then what? God can do it. Only God can do it. But what do we have to do? We've still got responsibility. We've still got the need to acknowledge our guilt and our sin. There's still a part. It's just like the tension that Joshua experienced. It's all on you because God is leading you and God has called you. Only God can do some things. And during the Shabbat, Shabbat Shuvah, we keep our hearts and our minds focused on our need for redemption. So at Yom Kippur, we're practicing something. We're rehearsing something. What will we do in the end when we stand before God at the end of our lives? What will we say? Will we try to redeem ourselves? Or will we stand with broken hearts and humility, even with weeping as we consider our sin, and we should be prepared. And in order to be prepared, we need faith, faith in him, faith in his redemption, faith in him providing the redemption, faith in him as our redeemer, as our kinsman redeemer, as our high priest, as our sacrifice, as our judge, as our vindicator, and as the lover of our soul. This is important. God already has proved his love by providing an atoning sacrifice for us through the death and resurrection of Yeshua. What else do we need to be prepared for? We need to be faithful, living for him, paying attention to his teachings and putting his teachings into action. And so we have to unite action and deed with our faith and how are we to think about our actions? They do count, they are important. 
They can't be brushed aside as insignificant, but they cannot be the sole basis of our redemption, and that is challenging. We can't, we must not trust in our own redemption by our actions. We must not think that we have righteous and worthy acts that are the basis of redemption, and we must not argue with God and say, I did all these good things in your name. That's proof that I should be redeemed. Yeshua teaches us about this snare, and I want to use the words of Matthew to help us grasp this. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Boy. So it's not just saying words, it's doing the will of God. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You would think those are the will of God, yes? The will of our Father in heaven, that we would do such things. Verse 23, and I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So something's going on here. The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, that's what Yeshua said. And it's interesting that people will explain that they did miracles and supernatural actions in Yeshua's name, but he'll refuse them. And when we think about that, they are explaining that they are acceptable because they have worthy deeds. And I think that they're trying to redeem themselves. They're not looking to God's redemption, they're trying to justify themselves because of their own worthy deeds. So what is, <laughs> what is the first deed that's necessary? It's teshuvah. It's to put a change in direction in our lives so that we turn towards God and we recognize, I cannot redeem myself, no matter how close or far away you are from God. We have to get to the point where we agree with the psalmist. I cannot pay the price for my soul. Everyone may be tempted to think that they can. Did you ever use this idea? Well, in the end, at the pearly gates, I'm gonna hope my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. Anybody ever use that one? I'm talking to the wrong group, I'm going somewhere else. None of you use that. <laughs> A lot of people have thought that way. Some people used to think that way and then they don't now. Maybe I'm not asking the question right, but a lot of people have that idea that, uh, you know, there's like this divine scale and my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and good, I'll be okay. But in reality, we need to take our deeds seriously, but we still can't redeem ourselves. So what does it mean only those who do the will of my Father in heaven? And I think there are, several aspects to this, actions are important. Let's say that, actions are important, but we have to focus 
on the Father's will that people stop trying to redeem themselves and stop trying to prove they are worthy and stop trying to use their ministry as proof that they're worthy. And instead, these words are important and these sentiments are important. Lord, I have no worthy deeds. I cannot redeem myself. In the category of deeds that could redeem me, I have none. Do I have any deeds? Yes. Do I have any good deeds? Yes. Should you have good deeds? Yes. But in this category, it's like jeopardy. It's, no, it's like double jeopardy. Nah, it's like the final round. You know, you're gonna bet everything you've got. And here's the question. Do you have a worthy deed that could redeem you, could redeem your soul so that you could live with God forever? And you know, the host is looking at how much money you can bet and says, uh, you got zero. You got zero and you got zero. Okay, nobody. So then, jumping from double, triple jeopardy, final jeopardy, to, to the fact that we each will face this moment and we rehearse it at Yom Kippur. We rehearse and we practice. And we, we, we recognize that we can't redeem ourselves. Then verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds his house on the rock. So here we have the listening and the doing. Uh, but we have to keep in mind, we don't want the wrong mindset, I will redeem myself by doing this. Verse 24, again, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell and its collapse was great. Yeshua's speaking prophetically, the storms will come. The storms will come. Everybody in Florida knows this. The storms will come. Wind, rain, floods, we can all relate to that. Houses will stand and houses will fall. People will stand and people will fall. And on this Shabbat, as we're preparing for Yom Kippur, we reflect on the storm that has come, and we can thank the Lord for his mercy and his redemption, and we can take to heart the words of the prophet Hosea, who spoke these words, return Israel to Adonai your God, for your guilt has made you stumble. And take words with you, and return to Adonai and say to him, forgive all guilt and accept what is good. What does this mean? It means at Yom Kippur, it's a moment of honesty where we're returning to the Lord. And every day can be like that.
but that it is something we should face and practice and do not just as individuals, but do together. It requires that we search ourselves, but it also requires that we vocalize to the Lord the honest truth. Take words with you. Isn't that interesting? Yeshua is saying, words aren't enough. Repentance is also necessary. Action is necessary. But sometimes actions without words doesn't do the job. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, forgive all guilt. You know what that means? Forgive all my guilt. Forgive all my sins. And accept what is good. You know what that means? Accept the sacrifice for redemption that I have. Look at that sacrifice. Not my guilt. Look at the sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? Yeshua. That's what we're saying to the Lord. It's, it's, it's so challenging. Lord, I need to be redeemed. And I don't have what it takes to pay the price. So would you look at the sacrifice that I bring? It's not even my sacrifice. It's your sacrifice. It's your sacrifice. Lord, would you look upon the Lord? Lord, would you look upon Mashiach Adonai? Would you look upon him, yourself, the one we pierced, the one we turned our eyes away from, the one we despised, the one we rejected? Would you look upon what you yourself have done that we couldn't do? and forgive. That's our prayer. And that's the attitude of our hearts. Lord, we want to be ready in season and out of season, during good times and during difficult times, during times that are threatening and times that are relief. Forgive our guilt and look upon all that is good that you have provided for us when you became the kinsman redeemer for us. We have no worthy deeds that are adequate to redeem ourselves. Thank you that you proved your love by providing the atoning sacrifice yourself. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close now. <clears throat> I want to invite you to join us for Kol Nidre again for Yom Kippur evening service, Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m., right here in the sanctuary. We'll live stream as well on Facebook and YouTube. And I also want you to take note of this, that we have an updated schedule for the daytime. We'll gather at 10.30 here in the sanctuary on Wednesday. We'll be praying and reading, fasting and confessing before the Lord on Yom Kippur, 10.30 a.m. 
and then we'll follow that with a Yiskor memorial service, we'll say Kaddish together, remember loved ones. In the afternoon, I think around three o'clock, we'll have a live stream reading of the book of Jonah on Facebook, and then at the end of the day, we'll have Nilah service, the concluding service that will also be live streamed. I hope you can be with us in person for the sanctuary services and live stream as well. For everyone who's participating by live stream, if this is a blessing to you, if our Messianic Jewish Teachings podcast is a blessing, if our sanctuary services or any of our synagogue services are a blessing, would you consider blessing our ministry? All the information is available on bethisraelnow.com giving. We're gonna close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And if your protocols allow you to be with people, you don't have to stand alone then. Come close. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad we can stand together. We're gonna close with Aaron's blessing. Shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep watch over you, guard and protect you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine brightly upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you with all of his favor. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen.